When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. We have allowed ourselves to become so disconnected and ignorant about something that is as intimate as the food that we eat. Be prepared to grow your own for victory. I'm said I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink foamed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. Hello and welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. I'm your host, Harold Thornbro, and glad you're joining me again this week. And I think we've got a great episode for you today. Um, today we're going to have a Q&A episode. And what I really like about these shows is, you know, every week I struggle to kind of think, well, what would be interesting to everyone this week? And and uh, when these Q&A episodes happen, uh, you get to pick what's interesting to you. And I, I enjoy that. It's it's easier in some ways to uh, come up with ideas that way. I can just answer questions. And we have a few great questions for you today. Uh, all these questions actually came from the Homestead Front Porch Facebook group. That is our Facebook group for this podcast. And if you're not a member of that, all you have to do is search in Facebook for the Homestead Front Porch and uh, request to join. I do ask a couple questions to you before you join, and you answer yes to those, and we'll get you right in there. And then you can start being a part of the community in there, and and uh, it's just a lot of fun. You know, we have a. I think there's been some really great relationships made in that in that uh, Facebook group, and you should be a part of it if you're not already. But before we jump into all the the, the questions today, I wanted to reapproach uh, the topic of last week's episode, which was mulberry trees. And uh, in that episode, I, I kind of gave a rundown of why I thought the mulberry tree was uh, probably one of the best things you could have on your homestead. And I gave some reasons for that. But you know what? It got pointed out to me by a couple of people that, man, you left some some obvious stuff out with mulberry. And I think I did. You know, I kind of I kind of shorted you on that episode a little bit there. And uh, uh, mulberry is even a, a better tree than, than what I even let on for last week. And uh, Nathan had sent me an email and reminded me of a couple things. And one, he had mentioned, you didn't mention the rot resistance of mulberry. And, and you know, that's something I knew about, and I should have absolutely mentioned that. Um, a lot of times mulberry is used for for fence posts and, and any kind of uh, an application where a, a good rot-resistant wood is required. So it has a really good, um, it's a really good wood for that. Also, uh, something he mentioned that I wasn't aware of, and he said it's kind of the secret weapon of many barbecue and smoked meat competitors. Um, it's similar to apple with some earthy, hickory-like flavors, and I thought that was really interesting. And if you're into that, that might be a great wood. It sounds like it would be a great wood uh, for, for doing your smoking with. So I thought that was a great um, a tip there. Uh, also, uh, Heather Eby, uh, who's been on the podcast a long time ago, she had uh, mentioned that she has one in her chicken run. And that it's just a great, because it's such a messy tree, it provides a lot of food for the chickens because all them berries just, you know, I keep calling the mulberry berry a berry, which it's not. It's actually a fruit, but it falls down and creates a kind of a big mess in the chicken pen. But that's great for the chickens. They love it. And she had suggested that's what she tells people 
that, you know, if you're going to plant one, plant one in a chicken run. And then what you don't gather, you know, the chickens will benefit from. It just falls down in there. And I thought, boy, what a great suggestion. So that's a great uh, use for the mulberry tree on your homestead. Well, with that out of the way, let's just go ahead and just jump right into the uh, the Q&A for today. Um, uh, Shannon asked, what would be the top three to five things that should be accomplished or bought uh, the first year of homesteading? Um, tractors, uh, chickens, uh, beef, meat, animals, garden, or compost pile. She has question marks behind all those. And um, my first thought is that you want to get started with anything that takes a while to establish and and or is easy uh, to get started with. And And when I was thinking, when she asked this question, the first thing that popped into my mind was, and because uh, I was just thinking about my homestead, and I'm thinking, okay, what do I wish I would have done earlier in the beginning that I could be benefit from benefiting from now? And the first thing was my fruit trees. I look at my fruit trees, and most of them are less than two years old, and I'm not really getting the benefit from those yet. So I'm thinking that one of the first things I'd want to do is plant plant some fruit trees, fruit, nut, whatever trees you're going to have on your property. I'm thinking fruit trees would be a great place to start because it's going to take a while to establish to start getting the benefit from those. So I'm thinking trees. Um, I'm thinking, uh, you want to prep a garden area for sure. Uh, if it's not, if it's not early enough in the year at that time that you could go ahead and just start getting you a garden ready and have it going that year, I would at least start prepping one. I mean, I would, I would put down cardboard in the area of the garden I was going to, I was going to plant in. I would cover it with compost and, and, uh, some kind of an organic matter like mulch or straw over the top of the compost and wet it down really good. Wet that cardboard down really good when you lay it down, square off an area. And I would let it sit and, you know, through the winter or, you know, fall and winter and have it ready for spring. And, um, you know, I would do that if I was going to, and, and honestly, I might even, I would probably even till it before I did that. I'm not a big proponent of, of tilling, but to prepare that area, I would probably till it once, lay the cardboard down, um, compost over the top of the cardboard. Um, just make sure when you're putting that cardboard down, you're removing all the tape and the stickers and things like that. You just want the cardboard. And and then throw a a few inches of compost over the top of that and then throw uh, some organic matter, uh, some straw, hay. I prefer straw just because there's less seeds in it Um, and uh, or some some mulch if you're going to go that route and let that sit for a while. So I would get a garden area prepped or ready or start a garden Um, and absolutely get started composting. I mean, it's one of the simplest when I said easy things to do. Yeah, starting a compost bin is easy. I mean, you could you could just start a pile, or you could, if you want to keep it a little neater looking, you can just get you like some pallets and square them off, fill those up uh, with with uh, organic matter, and just get it going. I mean, it's something that's not you're going to be pulling weeds, you're going to be you know throwing stuff out that's compostable. Um, why not have a place to put it? You know, right off the bat, and it's something that's not going to take you very much time. It's not going to be expensive. It's not going to take a lot of work. Uh, yeah, get started composting. Absolutely. Um, and get started with your preferred livestock, you know, especially you mentioned chickens. Should you get started with chickens? If you want chickens, yeah, get a couple chickens right off the bat. You know, it's, it's, you're going to do it anyway. You might as well start doing it early. Um, it's not going to require a lot of work. You know, you could build something really simple to house them an area to keep them. Um, you know, even if you want to just start small right off the bat, two, three, four, that's fine. You know, just get you a couple and get going with it. Uh, why not? Um, I would start planning for my infrastructure i would start thinking about things like outbuildings and fences and pathways and and 
because this is going to determine a lot where you're going to put trees and your garden area and your compost bin and all these things. So start planning those things out. And if that's something maybe you just can't quite get and you want to get it just right, because this can be expensive. You don't want to go putting in, you know, it can cost you thousands of dollars to put in outbuildings and, 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 and fences and things. So you want to get this right. This is not something you want to mess up on. So I might even, if it's something you're struggling with, making decisions on that, because you're going to be taking into consideration a lot of things like, like the sun, you know, in the shade of your property and, and, um, you know, wind and, and water access and things like that. Uh, this is an area where it might be beneficial if you're struggling with that or you don't have a good grip on that to pay a consultant. Um, I would probably go down the permaculture consultant route. There's a lot of, there's a lot of folks coming out of, uh, permaculture, uh, trainings that are looking to get started into consulting. And especially when they're early on, they're, they're probably doing this at a fair rate. Um, and you could get some, somebody to come out and, and, you know, cause they're trying to build their portfolio early. Okay. They're, they've been trained in this. They know what they're talking about. They know what things they're going to need to consider. I would get a hold of some of these folks and I would find somebody that could come out and uh, maybe, you know, do a sketch of my property and uh, do a design, do a permaculture design. You tell them what you're wanting on the property. You tell them kind of what you'd like to raise animal wise, what you'd like to grow uh, tree and, and vegetable wise. Um, you know, some, just the infrastructure layout, maybe you know, give them a rough idea and let them come in and say, this is where this needs to be. This is where you have to have a pathway. And this is, you know, they're going to break it down into zones for you. And they're going to give you a really good idea of where you should be putting in your infrastructure. So I would probably go that route if, if I was unclear on that. I, I think one of the key things is to just move slow. Don't overdo it. Take your time. Um, start with easy things and things that will take a while to establish like trees. But other than that, you're going to be on this property for a while probably, and you're going to have time to do things. But the big thing is you don't want to change things that are going to be hard to change. So when it comes to those big decisions and those expensive decisions, take your time with those, make sure you're doing it right. And, um, you know, get started right. So those are some things I would start with. Definitely trees, garden area, composting, and yeah, a little bit of livestock. I wouldn't get crazy with the livestock unless that's just your avenue. I mean, if you're starting a, you know, a herd of cattle, yeah, I mean, if that's the whole purpose of your homestead, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? But if you're like most of us who are just trying to ease into this thing, yeah, just take your preferred, your preferred livestock and, and go with that. And you know, I would go with something like chickens over rabbits, um, if that was an option, because, uh, like in my area, chickens are a lot harder to do because of local ordinances and things, but, uh, rabbits, you know, that's, that's the benefit to me of having rabbits is they're quiet and, you know, don't take up a lot of space or anything, but yeah, chickens, I mean, they're going to give you that double benefit of eggs and meat and, and compost, um, material. So yeah, you're going to want, you're going to want to get you started with some, uh, some chickens. Um, you said tractors. I don't know if you mean like rabbit or uh, chicken tractors, or if you're talking like equipment, but um, if you're talking chicken tractors, it's a great way to raise them. I mean, build build you two or three chicken tractors and start running your chickens across your property like that. It's not hard. It's not real expensive, and it's not something that's permanent. I mean, it ain't like you can't move those. They're made to move. So, uh, yeah, do that. I mean, if that's the way you want to raise them, uh, absolutely. It's a good way to start. Um, let's go to the next question. Elizabeth asks, what's the biggest mistake you've made on your homestead? Would you try it again? And what would you do differently? And, you know, Elizabeth, what I'm thinking about the question that Shannon just asked about, you know, when I got started and big mistakes I've made. I, I didn't make any really big mistakes because, again, I'm I'm on an urban homestead 
fair, relatively small property, uh, infrastructure issues. I did have to, uh, I did move some paths, pathways that was kind of a hassle and that I wish I would have planned out a little bit better. Um, uh, when I put them in and I did have to move those and rearrange some things, uh, I've put in fences, I've put in a couple outbuildings, but all in all, uh, those mistakes weren't, weren't so big that, that they were like life changing kind of mistakes. I think the biggest mistake that I've made here on this homestead was not starting earlier. And I did that because I kept waiting for that forever homestead. I kept thinking one day I'm going to be on the homestead that I can turn into the homestead I want. And I let perfection, uh, be the enemy of good enough. And, uh, what I found is there was so much I could do here. And I just never opened my eyes up to the possibility of what I could do right here on this little piece of land that I have. And what I've discovered is there is a ton I can do and there's a ton I'm still not doing. And I mean, I just, my mind just expands every day with knowledge of things I could add little things here and there and here and there, uh, to get the most out of a little piece of property. And I let, I let my thinking there get in the way of getting started sooner. So my biggest mistake absolutely was not starting sooner right where I am. And, and that's what, that's one of the, the things I just try to hammer towards people. I'd say, you know, right where you're at, do what you can do and do as much as you can do right where you're at. And it's so easy to just keep putting it off and putting it off until you can just get everything more ideal. And I say, don't do that. Absolutely. Don't do that. You can do so much right where you're at. So there, there's that. Uh, next question. Cindy asks, um, managing a homestead takes a lot of hard work every single day. Uh, even on weekends, holidays, etc. How do you get a break from what feels like a never-ending obligation? How do you take a vacation? Um, <laughs> well, uh, Cindy, I'll let you know if I can get one. Uh, no, um, I, I really don't, for the most part, uh, get away much. Um, but what I do is I slow down for seasons. Uh, I, I've mentioned in, in podcast episodes before that like, I get rid of we go ahead and, and process most of our animals before winter because in the winter things are more difficult and it's hard to get, you know, and if you want to get away, that's kind of a great time for us to get away. Now we like to camp and camping's difficult because you're going to do that in the summertime usually. And, and it's hard to get away. It really is. And, and that's kind of a trade off that we make as homesteaders. But at the same time, we, we can do it. Um, but winter is that reduction time for us. You know, we minimize the amount of animals we have on the homestead to where they're really easy to take care of. Of course, we don't have a garden going except for just a few things in the greenhouse, maybe like greens and things like that. That's pretty easy to take care of. Um, but if I do have to get away for a few days, which we do sometimes, you have to get someone to take care of your animals. So you basically you need a homestead sitter or farm sitter to kind of take care of things. And, and you know... Um, our next question basically fed off this question. Uh, Tamlin asks, she says, spinning off of Cindy's question, what do you look for in a farm sitter? How do you find one? Tips to make things easier for, for them and make sure animals will be taken care of when you're gone. And, and where I would go originally, or where I would go first, is I would begin with capable family members. I mean, people who, do, who care enough about me not to cause me harm, not to cause my homestead harm. Um, and if, if that's not an option, I'm going to find a friend and train them. And if that's not an option, I'm, I'm probably going to use a neighbor's kid. And when I say kid, I'm talking like a teenager. I'm going to find a close neighbor, somebody I talk to occasionally, uh, regularly, and see if their, their kids want to do it. 
In all of these situations, though, I'm going to train that person for a few days before I leave, even though it's going to cost me more. And that's the thing. I'm going to pay them pretty decent, too, okay? Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to pay them for probably three extra days before I leave. I'm going to train them on the first day, and then I'm going to let them completely do it for two days while I'm home. And that way they can, I can get a feel of how they're going to handle things, when they're going to show up, how they're going to do it. And, and they're going to basically completely do it. And I'm going to be available for questions if, if they have any questions or need some help. But I want to be there for a couple days. I'm probably going to pay them for at least three extra days, even though it's going to cost me more. And also, I'm going to be reachable. Uh, no matter what I'm doing or where I'm going, I'm going to be I'm going to I'm going to be in contact with them. I'm going to be on on the other end of a phone call. I'm going to make sure they can get a hold of me if they need to, because uh, me that's no different than any other business. You know, I ran my own business for a few years, and uh, if we went away, I had employees, and I needed to be, you know, I needed to be reachable if something went down. Now that being said, make it easier for them. Of course, that that couple days of training and and being there is going to make that easier for them. You're going to write down things. And you're going to have things that you can do if there's a if there's an actual issue. If something breaks, maybe you're going to have, uh, maybe you're going to talk to a, a handyman um, beforehand and have his number uh, in case you have to call a handyman to fix something. But you're going to have your your helper uh, tell you if something goes wrong. You're going to tell him some things to look for and keep an eye out for. And if any of those things happen or something breaks, um, I'm not going to leave them in a situation uh, with a sick animal. But if an animal did get sick, I would, I would of course, want to know about it and the seriousness of it. And I would keep in contact with my, my helper every day. Uh, I'd make a phone call every day. And I'd say, is everything looking good? The animal's doing good? And, and, and I'm going to tell him some things to look for, him or her some things to look for in those animals uh, that could uh, be possible signs of something going on. So I'm just going to basically train them for a couple days, you know, two, three days minimum. And then the good thing is, once you get a person like that, generally you can rely on that person over and over again. Um, like I said, I prefer family members because I have some capable and caring family members. And I would go that route first. But that's not an option for everyone. And, um, you know, I understand. And, and, and I'm not against using just any old body. But I would try to look for experienced people, people who've done this before. Um, people who are maybe, you know, if you're going to use teenagers, why I said neighbors is because maybe you're going to find some neighbors and they're running homesteads. Maybe you live out in a rural area and everybody's kind of doing what you're doing. Well, those teenagers are capable. They know what to do. They've done it. At the same time, you know that teenager too. You know if, they, if they're a responsible person, you know, because um, some aren't. And you want a responsible person, no doubt. So uh, look for somebody responsible. Train them. Watch them. Be in contact with them. That's all I can really tell you about that because, you know, it is a risk. Anytime you're leaving your homestead and you're not there to supervise things, you're taking chances, no doubt about it. But I think, you know, if you got to get away, it's just chances you got to take. But it's not any different than any other business or anything, really. I mean, you're going to uh, – I mean – to me, it's almost like leaving a sitter with your children in some ways. I mean, you want somebody responsible and caring and you want to be in touch with them. I mean, would you leave your kids home for a weekend with just anybody? You wouldn't, you know. And I, of course, your farm animals aren't the same as your children, but at the same time, they're important to you. They're very important to you, so you're going to want to find somebody uh, capable. Um, next question. Meg asks, 
Um, oh, this is uh, Meg Holler also. I wanted to tell you, uh, they have a YouTube channel called The Holler Homestead. Go check that out. They, they're getting ready to embark on some big adventures, and they've got some great videos on their YouTube channel. Um, I'll put a link to their uh, YouTube channel in the uh, show notes. But, uh, yeah, go check it out. Uh, uh, they, they're getting ready to do some, some big things, and, and they do some great videos and just a great YouTube channel. But uh, Meg asks, if you were to start all over, what would be the major things you would look for and a homestead slash property. Um, now, <laughs> this question isn't as hypothetical uh, as you might think. Um, this probably isn't our forever homestead. Uh, I'm thinking in probably three to five years, we're probably going to make the jump to a real homestead. Um, we've been urban homesteading now for a few years. And while at first I thought I was so amazed, and I even said this earlier, that I've been amazed at what I can do here. There is a limit, and there's only so many things I can do here. And one day I would like to do more. I mean, I would like to be able to have some serious acreage and do some things with and um, get away from some of the local ordinances and things. So it is something I've thought a lot about and what I would want to look for in a property. Um, Number one, I think, is good water. I mean, you have to have a a good water option. That's going to be really hard to fix if you don't. Um, so I'm going to want, if there's a well on the property already, I'm going to want to test that water. I'm going to know that it's good water because, uh, I actually have had some, not personal experience, but my grandparents had a place and the water was horrible and they had to actually bring water in, uh, on their place because their well was just garbage and, and they tested it in other areas and they couldn't even get good water on their, on their property. And they had to actually bring water in. So I would want a good water option, um, because there can be bacteria and sulfur and just all kinds of things. Now, there's good filters, filtration systems. Now, when I'm talking about my grandparents, this is, you know, 30 years ago. So it wasn't something that it was easy for them to deal with them. But things have gotten better with filtration and, and things like that. So purification methods, things like that. So, But I'm going to want to check for a good water source on the property. Um, second is good soil. I'm probably going to get a soil test. And, and you know, I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes with another question we had. But I'm probably going to get a, a good soil test. Now, soil's not going to decide completely unless there's just some serious heavy metals in the property. But um, I'm probably going to get a soil test. But it's not going to be the deciding factor because I know that you can fix soil for the most part. Unless it's something really, really bad. I mean, if it had nuclear waste dumped on it, I don't think I'd want to mess with that. But other than that, I can probably fix the soil. Um amending it and time and if all else fails even raised beds um but you know when you're planting trees and things like that you're going to want some good soil so i'm probably going to look at the soil uh, issue i'm also going to look at infrastructure if i'm not buying bare vacant land i'm going to be obviously concerned about the infrastructure the house the you know is it what i want it to be is it if it's not what i want to be it can easily be made what i want it to be i'm going to look at barns i'm going to look at outbuildings Uh, i'm going to look at things like that um, I'm also going to look at the septic system. Um, what are we looking at there? I mean, that can be an issue. Is, it, is there a problem there? Um, you're going to want to check out all that. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes as well. Another question. So, but that's something you're going to want to check out uh, on the property. And you're going to want to consider what surrounds you. Around here where I live, there's a lot of farmland. And that sounds great, doesn't it? But I'm going to tell you, I would rather live in town then I would live where some of these places are that are surrounded by fields. There is a lot of like half acre to one acre little plots of of grass, basically, with a house on them right off of a road that are completely surrounded by open fields. 
And on them open fields, they're growing GMO crops and they're spraying constantly and dumping stuff on these fields constantly. And you're protected by nothing. You're surrounded by that. I'm concerned about that. I don't want a property that's completely surrounded by open GMO managed fields. I, I just don't want anything to do with that. Um, I know it's going to be everywhere, but you know, you can find a place, a corner of a lot, maybe a wood surrounding you. I would rather have other houses around me with lots of grassland and them taking care of their properties in a proper way than I would have those open fields. So I'm going to be concerned about what's around me. What kind of lands around me? Is it, is it woods? Is it other neighbors? Is it fields? And then know a little bit more about those fields. I want to know a lot about my neighbors. I want to know what kind of neighbors I'm I'm probably going to, if I'm really looking at a piece of property, I'm probably going to go around and talk to all my surrounding neighbors and introduce myself and tell them I'm looking at that property, see if they can tell me anything about it and just, just feel them out, see what kind of person they are. You know, um, I'm going to consider the laws and ordinances of the area. Uh, is there some things that are, are going to cause me a problem? Cause they might, uh, I'm definitely going to avoid any kind of a HOA, I'm going to uh, avoid areas that, that have like a suburb area because sometimes you can get several acres of land in a suburb type area, and but there's going to be some restrictions. You might fall inside of some kind of a limit on some things, and you gotta and you gotta uh, avoid that. Uh, I'm going to also look for a good deal. I mean, <laughs> I'm frugal, right? So I'm not going to jump on a property that that I'm going to way overpay for just because I like everything about it. Personally, I'm going to look for you know, something I really, if it's going to be my forever homestead, I'm going to look for some things I can't change. Like I want water on a property. I'd like to have a river or Creek running through the property. A pond can be put on, but that's expensive, but I'm gonna look for those kind of options. I'm going to look for established trees and where they're at. Um, it'd be nice to have a lot of established uh, trees on the area, but in the right location. Um, so, I mean, these are just, these are preferences though. So it may not be what you're looking for, but I want certain things. I want a place where I can run animals. I want a place where I can have a nice garden that's exposed to the sun. I want a lot of things. And, and a lot of these things you just know when you see them. And a lot of these things can be created, you know, uh, they really can. And, um, I mean, you can turn some garbage property into to something great. You really can. You just have to have some vision for it. And, um, I used to not have that vision which is why I didn't want to do any kind of homesteading on my little piece of property. But since being here, it's actually helped me to have a lot of, a lot of vision because now I know what you can do with very little. And, um, if you had a lot to begin with, you could do so much more and it, it just expands your vision. So you just have to have a little bit of vision and you can't be completely turned off by trash and things like that. Um, you know, we've talked to people on the podcast who bought, you know, pretty tore up bad properties and turn them into something great. You know, I mean, uh, there's some properties around here. People throw junk and trash and tires all over them and things like that. You kind of got to look past those things sometimes, you know, and you got to think with a little bit of hard work, can I make this into something? And, and you know what? Usually you can. So, um, I'm going to look for certain things, but it's those things that you can't change or make better with a little hard work. And, uh, I hope that answers your question. I'm sure there's a lot more to that question that I would actually consider, but just off the top of my head, those are the things I'm, I'm thinking I would want to, I would want to, uh, look for, and I might even do a whole episode on that one day. If I put more thought into that and think about forever homestead, especially as I get closer to, um, to looking for our homestead one day. Okay. Next question. Kim asks, we just moved to a new construction home. How do I go about repairing my soil or getting it tested? Um, 
Kim, there's some different ways, uh, different kinds of tests. Like if you're doing something simple, like a, a pH test, you can do that on your own with some simple uh, kits. Uh, I don't think that's what you're talking about because you're talking about a new construction home. Your concern might be that they brought in a lot of fill dirt to, to do some landscaping and things around or to, to dig out of the, of the area of the home. Um, and you're right. I would probably want to get a complete soil test on a complete soil test. They're going to, um, you're going to get, you're going to find out of course about the pH, which you're going to probably want to be between six and 6.5. That can, that can be changed. I mean, you can do things for that if it's not to, to make it better, but that's ideal growing conditions for most, uh, uh, plants and trees. Um, it's going to give you the the nutrients of the soil. It's going to tell you if there's any heavy metals in the soil, which is probably your biggest concern. And, of course, the def- the nutrient deficiencies in the soil is also a big concern. But that can be fixed easily uh, just with, with additives and things you can put on your soil. The the heavy metals can be a real problem. So that's something you're definitely want to, going to get a detailed test for. Now, my suggestion is what you do is you go to your local county extension office. Uh, every county has access to one. Uh, your county dollars ensure that, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but they're usually tied in. What they they are tied in with with local universities, and these tests are sometimes free in some states and counties, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they have a fee attached to them. It just depends on your area. And you're going to want to take the area you're concerned about, and you're going to want to take soil from three or four different areas, and they'll tell you how to do this. You go down to your county extension office, and you'll get the kit. It's a box or a bag. It's usually a bag, I guess. And you will basically, they'll have all the instructions on how to do this. You'll put the soil from those three or four different locations in your yard, kind of stir it up a little bit. That way you get kind of a a combo of the problem in an area, which I'm guessing is a growing area that you're talking about. Um, Put it in a bucket, kind of stir it together, then you'll fill it, put, put however much they need in the bag, and then you take it back to the county extension office. And what you'll get back is a detailed report on the uh, nutrient levels, the deficiencies, the pH level, um, any heavy metals that are in the, in the ground, and then you can decide what you need to do. Uh, very may very well be that you don't have to do much of anything, um, in which case you just want to feed the soil. And you can do that with compost. Um, just compost and just like you would prepare any garden bed, basically, you're just going to put compost down and, 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 and just, you know, that's going to be your fertilizer for your property. And if it's a garden area, you might want to do the mulch thing and do all that. Um, if it's, uh, if it's got a deficiency in some kind, then you're going to, of course, want to find what methods there are to address that direct uh, deficiency in the nutrients. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Green sand can fix some, um, some deficiencies, lime, uh, there's calcium. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to add, um, to the, the nutrients of a soil if it has a deficiency. Um, I would want to do that in as natural of a way as I could, not using any kind of synthetic fertilizers or anything like that. Now, if you have heavy metals, you got a bigger issue, especially if it's things like lead and things like that. Um, and, and that could be a real concern, which is why I would probably get soil tests before I moved on to a property. Um, if that's a problem now, it's not a, it's not like a homestead killer completely. If, if you have these issues, um, cause in, in town, like in cities, major cities, I would not turn anyone away from saying you can't homestead there because your soil's bad. I'm just saying there's gotta, you gotta, you gotta find other solutions, which might be raised beds and bring in soil and, and things like that. Um, you might just have to be a little more careful about what you do with the soil and time usually takes care of a lot of those problems. Um, just time, you know, you can still feed the soil, try to get it to repair itself over time. Mushrooms have been proven. They do a lot to fix the soil. So 
Um, that's a good way to go if you need to fix your soil. But I, I don't want to talk about all that in detail because we don't even know if you have any kind of problems, you know, and, and that can be a whole rabbit trail. If you end up getting a soil test and you find a certain issue um, with that, uh, send me an email or ask me in the front porch and we'll see if we can't figure out in a more detailed way how to fix the problem if you have a problem. But if you don't have a problem, I mean, I'm saying just compost and regular, you know, maintenance for that area that you're going to grow in uh, is, is good enough. So that, that's what I would do, and that's how you go about doing that and getting a soil test and all. So uh, next question, Ian asks, uh, do you have any rules for people that visit your homestead? Do you allow them to pick from your harvest, or do you, or do you prefer that, that other people don't work with your crops? Have you had any interesting experiences when people tried to pick from your plants? <laughs> Yes, uh, I, I kind of do, uh, but I'm not real strict because I look at my homestead in a couple ways. It's the reason I do this podcast and have a website is, is I don't do it just for me. I also do it in a lot of ways as an experiment and as a training tool. Um, I I want other people to learn about homesteading, and, and because of that, it's worth sacrificing some of my produce or possibly even some of my plants to ignorance or um, uh, a little bit of disrespect or rule breaking to teach a lesson or to show somebody something. Uh, and, and mostly what I'm talking about is kids because now if I have a, an adult on my property that's tearing stuff up, I'm going to, I'm probably going to get a little bit aggressive with that person. Like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> you have a brain in that head. Uh, don't do that. You know, I'm going to get a little aggressive with kids. I'm going to be way more tolerant. Uh, I came around the corner one day and uh, I was driving down the road and I could see along my fence road, I could see the neighbor kids walking along my fence road and they was carrying a bowl. And I was passing my wife on the road and she said, uh, the neighbor kids are over walking along, picking all your berries and fruit along the edge of the fence. And I chuckled and I said, I'll take care of it. So I whip around and I come up with kind of like an alley behind my, my house. I whip up through there, which I don't normally go that way because I've seen them heading up that way. And I whip up that way and I pull back there and I, I actually see them chuck the bowl into some bushes. <laughs> and I get out and walk down there. So what's going on, guys? And, um, and they're like, uh, nothing. And I said, are you uh, picking some stuff? And they're like, no. And they were denying it and lying to me. And I said, well, you don't have to lie to me. Like, where's that bowl you threw in the bushes? And they went over and kind of got it. And it had, it had some blackberries and raspberries and things like that in it. And I said, I want to tell you something. Anything that hangs over that fence, you're welcome to pick. I don't care. You reach in there and grab whatever you want. I said, but you don't have to lie to me. You don't have to hide it from me. Just do it. But I said, if you're going to go, don't ever go inside and pick anything unless I'm home and tell you it's okay. Okay. And they're like, okay. And, and I, and I'm fine with that, you know, and I, I just got a kick out of it. It wasn't, it didn't make me mad at all. I just wanted to kind of catch him in the act and then kind of explain to him that it's okay. Um, I'm, I'm totally okay with you eating some of those berries. I actually prefer it. It's way more than I can eat and I'm going to do anything with because my entire fence line is nothing but blackberries and raspberries. So, um, they, they, you know, that was kind of a funny story, but it was funny that they were trying to lie to me and stuff, but no, I don't care. Uh, if I invite them in the backyard and they walk over and pick a tomato or whatever and eat it, I just want them to eat it. I don't want them to just throw it on the ground. You know, um, we have kids here occasionally and, and they'll go attack the blueberry bushes or whatever. Um, I have had a couple kids yank a plant clean out of the ground. I don't get mad. I say, don't do that. If you want the veggies off of it, just, just pull them off real easy. And I'll try to explain to them and teach them. Because it's the bottom line is I don't make my living with my homestead. If those crops were were uh, my survival was based on them, 
then I'd have a real problem with it probably. And I'd be a little more strict about it, but because they, they're not, I, you know, Hey, I love kids. You know, I love people, uh, enjoy a tomato because if you like it enough, you might try to grow one at your place next time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of open to sharing like that, but I do have a little bit of rules when they're, when I'm not at home, I want them to stay out of my yard and just kind of walk around my fence rows and they can reach apples and pears and cherries and blackberries and raspberries and occasionally a vegetable from there. So that's fine. I don't have a problem with it. Um, Derek asked me, uh, what's something that seemed useful that you've decided to stop doing on your homestead because it's more trouble than it's worth or the evidence shows it doesn't work or some other reason. Well, Derek, uh, but not, there's not been a lot of things because I, I do a lot of experimenting. So I expect some things to not work and I, and I don't, I don't, um, I guess I don't put a lot of thought into them when they don't, I just try the, the next thing. But one thing I did that I expected that I would always do and then I stopped doing because some troubles I ran into uh, was a colony raising my rabbits. Um, I loved the idea, and I did a podcast on it. I did an entire episode on it one time about colony raising rabbits. And you know what? It, it has so many benefits. It does. I loved raising the rabbits that way. It was just nice to see them frolicking around and playing with each other and doing their thing. But there were so many negatives to it that I decided to stop doing it. And uh, one was uh, their exposure to, th to to disease and parasites and things like that being on the ground. That was probably the biggest thing. And also there was just the, the population control issues and the <laughs> catching them <laughs> issues afterwards. I mean, I had to get in there with a dip net to try to catch them because <laughs> they were just so quick. Um, but there was enough issues there that I was like, you know, you hear a lot of good things about colony raising. And when I started doing it, I, when I'd done the podcast episode on it, I'd been doing it for a little while, but I hadn't had the issues yet. And then I had a lot of issues. And then it was like, you know, I think I'm going to go back to raising them in cages. There's, there's, there's a lot of things about raising them in cages that I don't like, but I'll tell you in the end, it's easier. And, and I think it's healthier for, in a lot of ways for the rabbit because they're just not exposed to a lot of things. Um, and, uh, so I, yeah, that was one thing. Um, something I learned last year. Uh, I, I heated my greenhouse for the entire winter. I'm not going to do that this year. Uh, I think the cost of heating that greenhouse was more than the benefit I was getting from heating that greenhouse all winter. So I prolonging with heat in the fall, and then I'll start early in the spring heating it to get things started. But, uh, through the hardest parts of winter, for a couple months, I won't heat it, and I'll just uh, make the sacrifice of not having any any uh, greens for a couple months, fresh greens for a couple months, because eh, the expense just isn't worth it, I don't think. So that's a couple things I could think of off the top of my head. There's probably more, but those were a couple things. Um, April asks, uh, what are some useful homesteady things we can do over our septic leach field? It's a very large grassy area that's going to waste, <laughs> literally, we need ideas for how to put this space to work. A chicken tractor for meat birds is the only idea we have so far. Well, you could def you could certainly do that. You could run some some uh, tractors over it and raise animals in tractors and move them along it. Let's think about how a leech bed works, and then we'll kind of we'll kind of decide uh, if it's what we can do or what we can't do with it to be more specific. Uh, a leach bed is kind of the overflow of your septic and, and, and stuff's going to kind of flow out through these, these, uh, pipes, um, that have these little 
slits in them and it kind of goes out through there's going to be stone and there's going to be soil and it's going to basically filter out uh, the waste the human waste uh, from your septic system and it goes out and spreads out through your yard which is natural i mean it's it's how these things get dispersed right so it's a large area and you'll find that your grass will grow better in that area because there's fertilizer but it's down a, it's down a, a you know a few feet um and that, that can vary i mean it can be shallow some leach beds are built a little more shallow depending on your location and, and where you're at um, sometimes they have to build them more shallow sometimes they're deeper so that it might be important to know that but but what you don't want is you don't want roots to get down in there and start filling up those holes in those pipes uh, you don't want them to clog up the system basically so stuff isn't flowing out like it should and it takes a lot to do that but there's also heavy taproot things that can go down and actually bust through grow inside those and pop them and break them and there's a lot that can happen there so you don't want to do things you don't want to put anything heavy on it because uh, you can crush down and, and settle down and crush those pipes um, so you're not going to be driving over the area or putting anything really heavy on the area. So what can you do? Well, what do you want to avoid first? You want to avoid anything deep taproot. So I, someone asked me the question one time about growing comfrey over, um, a leach bed. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't do that because you know, a comfrey root goes down eight to 10 feet, you know, so it could cause you some issues. Um, so what you, you know, what you want to do is, is think shallow roots and off the ground, because you, again, you do have, it is human waste. It's being filtered out. But personally, I don't want any vegetables laying right on the ground. I think we can overreact to that quite a bit. I mean, there's parts of the world where they grow vegetables right in human waste, okay? I mean, I and they don't die. Uh, you know, that's amazing to me. So we kind of overreact to it. But I would rather overreact and be safe than underreact, you know, and, and cause a problem. So if I'm going to grow vegetables of any kind on it, I'm going to want shallow roots, and I'm going to want up off the ground, the, the fruit to be fruit or vegetable to be up off the ground. Okay. So tomatoes, if it's up off the ground or peppers, I mean, anything shallow roots. Um, a lot of people say blueberries. I've heard blueberries in a, in a septic area because they're a shallow rooted uh, plant. You could grow them and they're up off the ground, of course. But something, if you, if you think, man, I just do, I just do not want to grow anything that I'm going to be eating over a septic tank or over a leach field. I understand that. Uh, I understand your, your hesitation towards that. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit funny about stuff like that myself. I probably wouldn't. But I'm thinking pollinator garden. I mean, this is something that could benefit benefit your, your homestead. Benefit, I mean, it's going to benefit your trees, your plants. It's going to draw in all kinds of just nature, beautiful nature. I'm thinking find you some, some beneficial uh, uh, flowers, plants, that don't that are shallow rooted, you know. Find you a list of shallow rooted uh, pollinating plants that bees, butterflies, things like this love to come in and and get the pollen from. And they're gonna they're gonna just gonna draw them in from everywhere. They're gonna also hit your vegetables and hit your trees and all that. And you're gonna benefit from it. So I'm thinking, absolutely. Uh, if you're wanting to grow something there, I'm thinking might be a great place for a pollinator garden. Just square you off an area and just make you some pathways through it and plant you all kinds of pollinator things in there and then maybe you can get you some bees on the back part of your property and they're going to benefit from that or something like that i mean i, I don't know these these are i think that's something that could be very very useful but again i would look for things that are shallow rooted uh look for i would go with perennials maybe for the most part you might want to do a few annuals but try to find some some shallow rooted perennials which is kind of rare because most perennials are a little bit deeper rooted because they you know it's how they keep coming back every year um 
yeah, I mean, I'd go that route maybe, and and not you don't want to do root vegetables because again, that's down in the soil. Um, and I like your idea of chicken trackers, or rabbit trackers, anything you run across that eat the grass. I mean, that's not going to hurt you. Um, but yeah, I would think along those lines. Just you know, keep it keep it shallow, and uh, get as much benefit from it as you can. And I, I like what you're thinking there. You're not wanting to waste a, not wanting to waste the place. So um, there, there's my answer for that. There was another question uh, about uh, coccidiosis um, this week, and and I've decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, punt that one to the next episode because I want to talk about that one in a little bit further detail. Uh, this person is struggling with with coccidiosis with their rabbits and and possibly going to infect their chickens, and they're worried about their pets, and and this is something I've dealt with, and I want to just kind of talk about that for the topic of the next episode. So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, Punt that to the next next episode, and we're going to deal with that question then. And uh, hopefully this has been helpful for you folks. Uh, if I've missed some things or you think that I left some things out and you want to cover it in a little bit more detail, jump in the Homestead Front Porch, find this post, and um, add to it. Or you can just uh, go to the uh, – I always post this um, this post at the top each week, um, uh, this episode at the top of the of our, our Facebook group. And, and just go in the comments there and add to it a little bit. And uh, if you have some other suggestions, that would help these folks out. But um, hopefully this helped. Hopefully I gave you some ideas and got your wheels turning a little bit and got you thinking about it. And, um, you know, I think that uh, it's good that we can come together as a community and uh, kind of help each other out. And, you know, I don't have all the answers, but as a community, we come up with some pretty great answers. So don't don't be afraid to be part of that community. Same thing with that mulberry tree. You know, I missed a lot of stuff, wasn't thinking clearly on a few things, kind of threw that episode together last minute and, you know, kind of, you might have even heard me kind of jumbling through it a little bit because I was kind of rushed for time. Uh, but as a community, we can come together and give some other suggestions and get some other ideas. And yeah, I love that. I love that we can come together as a community and I can even share that on the podcast uh, for those who don't. Uh, really getting in our home, you know, our Facebook group that often. So um, there you have it, folks. There's there's uh, my answers to a few of your questions. Uh, I love doing these kind of episodes. So if you ever want to uh, to ask questions, throw them in there. You know, we can. Uh, I try to do them. I actually you know post in the group that I'm going to do an episode like this. But it can happen anytime. I'll answer a question on a podcast anytime if you'd like to have an answer. Just ask it in the Homestead Front Porch or send me an email to uh, sthomestead for smalltownhomestead dot, uh, at gmail dot com. And uh, ask your question. We also have a phone number there that you can uh, call and leave a voicemail that you can get at the website. And uh, yeah, I love these kind of episodes. So uh, hey, if you enjoyed this episode, go into iTunes and uh, leave us a, a, a rating and review. We love and getting those. We got another one last week. I just love getting those. It's really encouraging to know that it's, this uh, podcast is helping some folks out, or that they're enjoying it, and that it's keeping them focused on their homestead, and and then, you know they're growing a little bit from it. So um, love to have. Uh, uh, ratings and reviews, wherever you're listening. And, uh, you know, share the podcast with someone. You know, uh, I think that my one of my goals uh, doing this is to get, get the word out about homesteading. And, uh, you know, that happens through the podcast and through you guys sharing it. And uh, so, yeah, share the podcast with some folks. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad you joined me this week. And until next episode, happy homesteading and God bless. Thanks for listening. To see the show notes for this podcast or listen to other podcast episodes, go to smalltownhomestead.com. There you can also read our blog, connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, and take advantage of the many resources we make available to help you along in your homesteading journey. Please share this podcast and help us to carry out our mission of helping others to homestead today for a better tomorrow.